This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. This is my new weekly podcast that follows stories of murder and betrayal from across the country and across the globe. Join me as I investigate the motives and the madness as we attempt to shine a light into the darkness of the human condition. You're listening to part two of The Werewolf Butcher. On April 12, 1995, Rita and her 14-year-old daughter, Amanda, went to the video store after school at around 3 p.m. and rented the Shawshank Redemption. They also went to the grocery store, no doubt picking up food for dinner before they headed home for a quiet night in together. According to the timeline investigators would put together later, at around 8 o'clock, Rita talked to her boyfriend on the phone. Then around 9.30, she had one last call from her adult daughter who lived nearby. At some point that night, Amanda went to bed, and Rita stayed behind on the sofa. But by 11.30, she had dozed off in the living room. It was raining that Wednesday night when Jack Spillman, completely dressed in black, left his girlfriend's apartment telling her he was just going for a drive. But that wasn't true. What was is that he was going for a ride. And his destination was the Huffmans. At the time, local authorities had no idea that a dangerous predator was living in their community, the one responsible for that spree of bizarre burglaries and the attempted rape. The Okanagan County Sheriff's Office, running the Penny Davis investigation, had never notified Wenatchee law enforcement that Jack Spillman was a person of interest in her murder. Even if they had been made aware of the Penny Davis case, and despite Spillman's extensive criminal background, his lurking behavior and exposure in Wenatchee had already caught the attention of local police. But how could they have predicted that Jack Spillman was a ticking time bomb, a now activated, psychopathic, sadistic killer, hell-bent on recreating the sick sexual fantasies he'd been storing in his head for so many years? He wanted to make them real. And that the Huffmans, 48-year-old Rita and her teenage daughter Amanda, didn't stand a chance when he pulled into the parking lot of the elementary school near their tan rambler. The truth is, Spillman had been casing the home for months, taking note of their routines, masturbating from a distance, but that night, he wouldn't stay hidden. He crept up to the sliding glass door, checking it with his knuckles, making sure not to leave any fingerprints. He found it was unlocked. Without a sound, Spillman was inside. Rita Huffman was described as outgoing and friendly, the type of person who would go out of her way to help others. She was a popular saleswoman at a local car dealership, and her charm was legendary, which is all to say she was well-known in the community in her own right, but was also the former wife of the Douglas County Port Commissioner Jim Huffman. But that night, as she lay sleeping on the couch, she was totally vulnerable. I walked over to her in her robe, 
was kind of open and I could see her, her breast. And from right then, I walked over into the kitchen, opened up the drawer, grabbed a knife, walked over to her, and started stabbing her. Why? I mean, it was like, well, it was kind of hard. It's like, like a cat. You know, it's just a, it's that reaction. I mean, it's just a, but then she looked up once, saw me. Were you dressed? You said this is like the cat. Were you? Yeah, I was dressed. Yeah. And I was stabbing her. But I don't remember stabbing her that many times, but it says that she was stabbed, you know, like five or six times. But uh, she looked at that, looked at me, and it was like, whoa, I took off her. And I left. Rita had sustained defensive wounds. Basically, she woke up fighting for her life. So much so that the watch on her wrist was so damaged, the inside crystal had been shattered, which suggested that it had been broken during that wholly unexpected and vicious attack. Time stopped at 11.37. That was the time that investigators believed Rita Huffman was being murdered. Under the cover of darkness, Spillman fled with the knife and Rita's purse. He climbed into his truck and drove back to his girlfriend's apartment complex. But he didn't go inside. Rather, he sat in the truck and rifled through her purse. Before he drove back to the Huffman's, he made sure to bring another knife, his gloves, and a black ski mask, the kind with the holes cut for the eyes and a slit for the mouth. The only reason I went back is because she saw me, and it was like, well, I wanted to make sure that, that she wouldn't talk now if she was alive. And, uh, so when I went back, I drove by just like the morning that you guys found, I drove by. But I drove, I drove by and there was no cops there, no, none, no lights or none. Parked in the same spot, walked over, didn't have a ski mask on, I didn't want to be that suspicious. I walked in, looked at the phone, make sure the phone was still in the same place, looked around, see if there was any blood, or she might have maybe got up, got on the phone or something. Had she moved? Yeah, she moved. Rita had only enough strength to crawl a few paces before she died. Having been stabbed in the chest so many times, it's unlikely that she would have even been able to speak, let alone warn her sleeping daughter. When I got there, she was already over towards the TV, hunched over on the side of the couch. Like she was passed out, hunched over. And I walked in and I kicked her, fell over, and she was dead. I moved her back where she was, and where she was laying down. I'm not going to describe the details of what Spillman did to Rita, other than to say that he removed both of her breasts and eviscerated her body. Okay, why are we doing all this cutting? Well, it's, I guess it's to destroy, I guess. Um, well, I got an excitement out of it. I mean, it was, I don't know, it was sexual excitement. Meanwhile, Amanda, a ninth grader from Eastmont Junior High, was completely unaware of what had happened to her mother. But after surveilling the Huffman home for months, Spillman had familiarized himself with their routines. He knew that Amanda was asleep somewhere in the house. Investigators believe that Amanda was Spillman's intended victim all along. Spillman found her asleep in her mom's bed, what it was, I took the bat, sized up the bat. I didn't mean to kill her the first hit. It was like a baseball player that, you know, it takes a long time before he pitches the ball. You know, he does his hat and all that. But I was taking the bat and put it right far from away from her head, you know, kind of measuring it up. And I hit her. I hit her too hard. When I hit her, it's like 
it jarred her. It did, she didn't even know what hit her, but she was she was unconscious because I know she was they knew they uh, kind of like heavy snoring and unconscious. They uh, killed her. And, uh, how many times she did? Three, three times, three or four times. Amanda was found on her mother's bed, laying in a large pool of blood. And I'm not going to go into the details of what Spillman did to Amanda, other than saying, like her mother, she'd been eviscerated and left in a posed position. Dr. Keppel would go on to write about both Bundy and Spillman in his book called Signature Killers. Here, he would explain that their arc of violence had swung so far afield that the killing itself— and then the post-mortem damage offered a physical high, and it's a high not always experienced sexually at the time of the murder. The way Spillman posed his victims was an integral part of his twisted fantasies. How he left their bodies was a way for him to get even at women and young girls by degrading them. Would you do that? I can. Well, that is because of women like Belinda, who. Like the teas or whatever, oh, it's just, you know, put it where her mouth is, I guess. I don't know. Get back at him some way. Yeah. Like a fiend, Spillman fled the Huffman residence under the cover of darkness for the second time that night. He drove down the street and pulled into the local chapter of the Veterans of Foreign Wars of the United States, or the VFW, which is a gathering place for vets in the community. There's not a lot going on at 1.30 in the morning in East Wenatchee. So when a police officer working graveyard clocked Spillman's black Chevy short box pickup truck in the VFW parking lot, it caught his attention. The hall had long since closed, so why was that truck parked there? Suspicious, the officer began entering the entryway of the parking lot. There was only one entrance, and he stopped as he watched as the parked truck started to leave. The patrolman blocked the exit. Strangely, the driver of the truck responded by getting out and standing with his hands up in a surrender position, despite not being asked to do so. At this time, the patrolman didn't have a clue about the Huffman's murders. He asked for the man's ID, and it was Jack Spillman. Everything about the stop that early morning put the officer on high alert. Spillman surrendering without provocation. He was entirely dressed in black. There were work gloves on the passenger seat. And he noted that Spillman had tools in the back of his truck. The officer was suspicious that Spillman was trying to break into the VFW. When he asked Spillman what he was doing there in the middle of the night, he said he was just turning around. But the officer didn't buy it and called for backup. He wanted to see if the VFW had any signs of a break-in. It didn't. So the officer asked Billman a second time, what are you doing here? If you wanted to turn around, you wouldn't have to drive all the way up to the building to do so. And here, Spillman changed his story. He said that he'd played bingo at the hall in the past, and he just wanted to check it out. With no sign of a break-in, the officer wasn't able to determine that Spillman had committed any crimes, and he didn't have any outstanding warrants, so he let him go. But the officer's instinct that Spillman was up to something no good would prove critical in the days to come. And then I went to uh, straight down to the FWL, and I was there putting a knife in the garbage can. Um, just, it was full, but there was just a way for it to go down the side, and it went all the way down the bottom. And then when I put it in there, my radar detector went off, and 
was scared. I knew there was a cop in there. I knew I knew the cop was coming before him, so so I hurried up and got in my truck. And pulled right in front of me where I couldn't go out. Blocked me. In. I put my hands up. It's always been a. It's not that I was saying, "Okay, I'm caught." It's all because it was dark, and everything. So I put my hands up so I could see it. And it's just something I did. Spillman left the VFW and drove to a nearby mini-mart, where he threw the work gloves away in a dumpster and bought a mocha. Afterwards, he drove back to his girlfriend's apartment and crawled into bed next to her. It was around 2 a.m. Early the next morning, his girlfriend's roommate recalled Spillman getting up and taking a shower, which she said wasn't common. The following morning, Rita's adult daughter was getting a little antsy. She'd been calling her mom all morning with no answer. She was worried that her mom's alarm clock hadn't gone off, and she really didn't want Amanda to be late for school. So at around 8 a.m., Angie decides to run over to her mom's real quick. She enters the home thinking she's going to wake up Rita and Amanda. And as she enters Rita's bedroom, she sees her sister. And what she finds is incomprehensible. So much so, she runs out screaming and crying. Her reaction was so raw that neighbors thought she'd been hit by a car. And this was exactly the kind of reaction that Spillman had craved. As I mentioned earlier, his murderous rampage wasn't just about what he did to Rita and Amanda that night. It was also the prolonged satisfaction of staging his victims so he could feast on their loved one's reaction to the carnage he left in his wake. It's for whoever came in, more or less, saw them. It's the reaction to what I would have liked to have seen argument so but you would like that reaction she would have seen her mother in that condition i would have saw her in that condition if if i would have seen her daughter come in and seen her mother be able to see that reaction that her daughter screaming and whatever she was doing but um that make you feel good at 807 deputy aiken arrives He's been told there's a pedestrian car accident, but once on the scene, he realizes that the woman they thought had been hit by a car was Rita's daughter, and that she'd run out of her mother's house screaming and crying and collapsing in the yard because she was completely traumatized to find her mother and sister murdered. A regional task force was quickly assembled from the Douglas and Chelan County Sheriff's Office and the Wenatchee and East Wenatchee Police Precincts. In short order, reporters were at the edges of the Huffman's residence as law enforcement and forensic experts swarmed the crime scene. Within hours, news reports of the double homicide hit the airwaves, spreading like wildfire within the community. These breaking news reports prompted important witnesses to come forward with vital information. A young man called a tip into the sheriff's office. He said that he remembered seeing a truck parked at an elementary school near the Huffman's residence at 11.30 on the dot. He explained the reason he remembered the exact time with such clarity was because his girlfriend's curfew was at 11.30 and they had cut it pretty close that night. She lived near the Huffman's and as they drove past, he remembered thinking how strange it was when he saw a black Chevy pickup with big tires and a short box at the elementary school. He wondered what it was doing there at that time of night when the school was closed. 
Police asked him to come down to the scene right away and to show them exactly where he saw the truck parked. It was roughly 250 feet from the Huffman's sliding glass door. Another witness came forward, saying they'd seen Spillman in the immediate area of the Huffman residence a week before the murders. Meantime, the task force had sent inquiries to all the local agencies regarding any contacts with Spillman, and by the morning of April 14th, the task force had organized an extensive search of the corridor between the Huffman residence and the VFW. But they didn't find anything. Later that day, though, that officer who had stopped Spillman at the VFW called in and detailed his strange confrontation of Spillman at the VFW at 1.30 in the morning. Now, given the VFW's proximity to the double homicide, the confrontation felt really important to the investigation. It prompted them to search the trash container for a second time that day. And this due diligence would prove to be a huge break in the case. At 6 p.m., Deputy Sheriff Larry Aiken opened the lid of a garbage can on the VFW grounds and saw a 12-inch knife with a wooden handle stuck to the bottom. The garbage had been collected after they had checked it that morning, but miraculously, the knife had stuck in a crease at the bottom of the trash container. When the rest of the garbage was automatically tipped over, it stayed at the bottom. Detective Robin Wagg jumped inside, pried the knife loose, and bagged it into evidence. He noted that the blade was stained reddish-brown. The knife was stamped Emperor Steel, and it was immediately sent to the crime lab. That garbage container was within 15 feet of where Spillman had been parked the night before, and it matched a set at the Huffman residence. Detectives were also trying to piece together how Spillman could be connected to Rita and Amanda. At first, there didn't seem to be any connection. But within days, micro-situations would help them create a devastating window into Jack Spillman's psychology. Detectives tracked down Amanda's softball coach, who recalled seeing a black Chevy pickup with large tires and a roll bar, and that it was seen several times parked near the softball field during practices when Amanda was present. Detectives also went to the local watering hole called the Igloo Tavern. It was a place that Rita frequented with friends, and it's here that the investigators began to piece together a somewhat murky encounter with Jack Spillman just two days before the murders on April 10th. Rita had been chatting with friends at the tavern when the bartender told her that her daughter was on the phone. Remember, this was before cell phones. So Rita left her friends at the table and went to speak with her daughter on the bar's phone. On Rita's way back to the table, witnesses observed a man who'd been sitting at the bar, and he grabbed Rita by the arm. Apparently, the two exchanged words briefly before Rita walked back to her friends. The witnesses didn't get the impression that Rita and the stranger knew each other. Employees of the tavern and Rita's friends would later identify the man at the bar as Jack Spillman. No one reported knowing what the verbal exchange was about, and Spillman left soon after, leaving the only beer he'd ordered unfinished. The altercation, whatever it was, didn't threaten Rita enough to report it to the police. I mean, how many women have had that kind of encounter with a weird guy at a bar? I'm trying to imagine what she would have said if she called the police. The stranger at the bar grabbed my arm and called me a name? 
Criminal profiler Vernon Gebberth theorized that Spillman probably felt that Rita had put him down at the bar and said that these types of people, when they get put down by a woman, they become extremely dangerous. They're going to get even. Remember, Spillman was still harboring anger and rage against Belinda from ninth grade. Even though the bloody knife had been sent to the lab for analysis on the 14th, it would still take days to get the results. I mean, investigators had to feel pretty confident, given all the circumstantial evidence that was growing against Spillman, that the knife that they'd recovered from the VFW garbage container was the murder weapon. But it wasn't a slam dunk by any means. A presumptive test confirmed that the brown and red stains were blood, and the medical examiner confirmed that the width and depth of the victim's wounds were consistent with the knife that they found in the garbage can. But was it human blood, and did it belong to Rita and Amanda? The prosecutor wasn't taking any chances with a premature arrest before those test results came back. There was just too much at stake to get it wrong. Even so, there was no way they were letting Spillman out of their sight as they awaited those results. And so 24-hour surveillance was approved. Detectives would interview Spillman's mother in the following days, and she told investigators that on April 13th, the day after the murders, at around 9.30 p.m., Spillman had asked his mother to put a different knife into her storage unit for safekeeping. Pretty soon after the murder, Spillman knew he was being followed by the police. I mean, his family was being interviewed. Even so, a couple of days later, obviously before Spillman realized he was being followed, he had ditched the ski mask. Detectives would send it to the crime lab as well, and to their absolute horror... The slit on the mask, where the mouth is, tested positive for the victim's blood. Later, Spillman would confess that he drank the blood of his victims. I took my finger, wiped up the blood with my finger, and stuck it off my finger. How'd that make you feel? Exciting. Exciting? Yeah. Always is. Always is. When the blood on the knife came back as positive blood types of both Rita and Amanda Huffman, they prepared an arrest warrant. They also wanted help as to how to effectively take Spillman into custody because by now they had a fuller picture of who they were dealing with. They'd found out through interviews with the family that he'd long studied books on murder, serial killers, and police investigations, and that he had an unhealthy obsession with wolves. Detectives had also pieced together his extensive criminal history dating back to when he was just 13. How he'd become a suspect in that attempted rape that occurred in Douglas County four months prior to the murders. Remember the one where the woman was able to get a hit to his groin, and so he limped away threatening her. But she hadn't gotten a good look at his face. And then all of those bizarre burglaries, which they were now able to connect to Spillman. The killing of the hamster of his niece's friend and the cat he'd killed belonged to one of the homes he'd worked on as a roofer. But the biggest revelation came when detectives found out from the Okanagan County Sheriff's Office, it was the neighboring county to the north of Wenatchee, that Spillman was a person of interest in the disappearance and subsequent murder of Penny Davis. It was revealed that her skeletal remains were found posed in the same position as Amanda. On April 18th, six days after the Huffman's murders, and knowing that Spillman's arrest was imminent, investigators flew to Seattle to speak with Dr. Bob Keppel. 
At the time, Dr. Keppel oversaw the Washington State Attorney General's Office Homicide Information Tracking System, or HITS, and was considered an expert criminal profiler. The investigators wanted to pick his brain about the upcoming arrest, the best way to go about the interrogation, and go over the criminal profile that they'd asked Dr. Keppel to work up for them based on the crime scene and Spillman's background. Dr. Keppel's profile stated that the killer would have ritual paraphernalia and souvenirs contained in a private chamber of horrors. This chamber could be a dark closet, a room, basement, or hole in the ground, and that investigators should be aware that the killer may use an abandoned barn, cabin, or garage, any place significant to the killer that this specialty place would be designed to help the perpetrator manufacture and refine fantasies. Armed with this information, one week after the murders, Spillman was arrested in the early morning hours of April 19th. I'm sure investigators wanted to get Spillman talking about this potential chamber of horrors. Given the grotesque nature of the crimes, obviously they didn't believe the Huffmans were Spillman's first murders, but Spillman immediately invoked his Miranda rights. Refusing to provide a statement, he was booked on two counts of aggravated first-degree murder. While in jail awaiting trial, Spillman's cellmates would turn on him, telling investigators that Spillman had bragged about wanting to be the worst serial killer and how he believed he would outsmart the police as he realized his wildest sexual fantasies, which included sexual assault, evisceration, and sexual mutilation of young girls. In quick order, Spillman went from being a person of interest in Penny's kidnapping and murder to a suspect. Staring down three aggravated murder charges, Spillman confessed to murdering Penny, Amanda, and Rita to escape the death penalty. Four months after Spillman pled guilty to the murders, he granted an interview with Dr. Keppel, who believed the only reason that Spillman had agreed to the interview was because he knew that Keppel had interviewed Ted Bundy before his execution in 1989. And so basically, it wasn't about any guilt or remorse. It was about his ego. And during the interview with Keppel, Spillman says his only regret was that he didn't just leave the knife at the crime scene. Because I left the one stuck in the panda. I knew that I could leave it. If I would have just left it, everything would have just been fine. Except for the, the first one. I mean, I had my fingerprints all over. But I still have regrets. Still have regrets. The regrets that you have are leaving the evidence, not for what you did. Right. Right. Well, I have no regrets for what I did, though. Yeah. No regrets. Yeah. At the Washington State Archives in Ellensburg, with the wonderful help of Bridget Clift, I was able to go through hundreds and hundreds of documents related to the case and the tapes. But there was also a section of carefully curated news clippings on the Huffman murders. According to a report in the Wenatchee World, Amanda's dad was later interviewed after the murders, and he said that they'd found a paperback copy of To Kill a Mockingbird in her locker. The find was a connection to his daughter, but he said it also haunted him. He read the book as a way to get closer to his girl, and he, and he couldn't help but see connections between Mandy and the protagonist of the book, Scout. He would say, Mandy was like Scout. She was a tomboy and prankish and had her own sense of justice. I felt a pretty strong connection with the character Atticus in the book, her father, in always defending to her the system and how the system works. The newspaper article said that in the book, the system failed. But in the end, justice was served here in this case. 
but I'm wondering if it was. For this podcast, I requested to interview Detective Robin Wagg, who worked the case. He's retired now. But we did have a couple of conversations. He says he normally doesn't give interviews on this case. He's not much for limelight. And in the past, he's always turned down media requests out of respect for the victim's families. And for himself. He doesn't want to dredge up the case because it brings up painful memories. But he said he would talk to Rita's daughter to see if she would be okay with him speaking with me this time around because there's a thought that keeps him up at night. Could Spillman ever be released? After speaking with Rita's daughter about the interview, she asked him not to. And let me tell you, I totally understand. But I did ask Detective Wegg if I could share with you, in his own words, what the stakes are in this case. Because there's a chance that Spillman could get downgraded from maximum security in prison to the general population. From what I understand, high security prisoners are really expensive to take care of, and the downgrade would save money. But implications down the line could be devastating. So this is what Detective Wag wrote. Quote, As I stated before, I think I will go along with Angie's wishes. We have a special bond as a result of this case, and I bow to her wishes. In talking with her, I have discovered that the Department of Corrections have failed in their statutory obligations to keep her updated on Spillman's status and location. That is another reason I am suspicious of the department's forthrightness in their classification of Spillman. As I told you before, they tried once to move him out of state, and a person in the know at the DOC, which is the Department of Corrections, who brought it to my attention, told me that once an inmate is out of the state where he committed his crimes, it is much easier for his custody status to be downgraded. This investigation was also hard on the investigators who worked long hours for months on end. They were all dedicated professionals who struggled with the horrific nature of this investigation, and I am proud of every one of them. Like Angie, I really don't want to relive that part of my life again. Thank you for understanding regarding this matter. It is critical that we never forget that Penny, Rita, and Amanda lost their lives to this monster, and that Jack Spillman the so-called werewolf butcher, because of what he did to his victims, should never have his status in prison downgraded from maximum security to the prison's general population. Because given what Penny, Rita, and Amanda endured both in life and in death, that outcome is just too terrifying to contemplate. Now, you obviously like that two hours. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're harboring in your head. Why is it that the Huffmans didn't die in two hours? Because it was a different case. Totally different case. Why? What happened with Penny? Well, for a while, Penny had all the time in the world. Well, Huffman did too, but two point. I had all night. But when it first happened, with the mother, I mean, it was just a bam. Right. That's probably what threw it off. I wanted to prolong it. With the daughter, but it too hard, and misjudged it. With the mother out of the way, well, then I didn't have to have it all night with her. So, the two-hour part, you weren't stabbing her in that two-hour period, as in like Rita. No, no, Penny. She was going on, not stabbing like Rita. Like the mother was stabbed. No. You're keeping her alive, but you're still. She was alive for 
and everything was going on for two, about two hours. So you're, what are you doing to her? I know you're getting excited and you're liking it. And you've talked about torture in the past. Are you strangling her, reviving her? Are you using the knife to I say, yeah, I'm strangling her, her using the knife, molesting her and everything. Okay, we're just gonna drop all those those four categories just into one big pot, huh? Just like a soup. Huh? Yeah. That's bullshit, man. What you gotta understand here is what in the world went first, second, third, how this thing progressed, what was what was happening See, to you. Just want me to tell you that. You got that right. You're exactly right. But we what is the reason that I want you to tell it that I want you to tell us this? Well the reason you tell me is because you wanna to learn. Or yes. Absolutely. I look at similar cases every day, okay? People say, is this murder connected to this one? If we'd have found Penny ahead of time, before she would have had time to decompose or the animals would have got to her, would there have been similar things that we would have found at the Huffman residence to connect those two crimes together? Similar psychopathological things? Could have. Could There we go. All right. That's what I want to know. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.